Chapter 4 of Gullible's Travels, etc. by Ring Lardner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Water Cure When it comes to making matches, I hand it to the women. When it comes to breaking them, leave it to the handsomer sex. The 13th of June didn't light on a Friday, but old Tuesday came through in a pinch with just as good results. Dear little sister-in-law Bess blew in on the afternoon train from Wabash. She says she was making us a surprise visit. The surprise affected me a good deal like the one that was pulled on Napoleon at Waterloo, Iowa. How long are you going to light up our home? I asked her at the supper table. I haven't made up my mind, says she. That's all you've missed, then, I says. Don't mind him, says my missus. He's just a tease. You look grand, and we're both tickled to death to have you here. You may stay with us all summer. No question about that, I says. Not only may, but liable to. If I do, says Bess, it'll be in my sister's account, not yourn. But I'm the baby that settles your sister's account, I says, and it was some account after you left us last winter. With your visit and our cute little trip to Palm Beach, I'm not what you call cramp for pocket space. I guess I can pay my board, says Bess. I guess you won't, says the wife. The second guess is always better, says I. As for you entertaining me, I don't expect nothing like that, says Bess. If you was looking for a quiet time, I says, you made a big mistake by leaving Wabash. And I'm not looking for no quiet time, neither, Bess says right back at me. Well, says I, about the cheapest noisy time I can recommend is to go over and set under the elevated. Maybe Bess has something up in her sleeve, the missus says, smiling. You ain't the only man in Chicago. I'm the only one she knows, says I, outside of that millionaire scenario writer that had us all in misery last winter and I wouldn't say he was over-ardent after he'd knew her a week. Then the wife winked at me to close up, and I didn't get the dope until we was alone together. They correspond, she told me. Absolutely, says I. I mean, they've been writing letters to each other, says the missus. Who's been buying Bishop's stamps? I asked her. I guess a man can buy his own stamps when he gets ten thousand a year, says she. Anyway, the reason Bess is here is to see him. Is it illegal for him to go to Wabash and see her, I says. He's too busy to go to Wabash, the wife says. I don't see how a man could be too busy for that, says I. She phoned him this noon, says the missus. He couldn't come over here tonight, but tomorrow he's going to take her to the ball game where all the rest of the busy guys hangs out, I says. Aren't the White Sox having enough bad luck without him? That reminded me that I'd come home before the final extras was out, so I put on my hat and went over to Tim's to look at the scoreboard. It took me until 1 a.m. to memorize the batteries and everything. The wife was still awake yet when I got home, and I had enough courage to resume hostilities. If what you told me about Bishop and Bess is true, I says, I guess I'll pack up and go fishing for the rest of the summer. And leave me to starve, I suppose, says she. Bishop will take care of the both of you, I says. If he don't, I'll send you home a couple of carp. 
"'If you go and leave me, it's the last time,' she says, "'and it shows you don't care nothing about me.' "'I care about you all right,' I says, "'but not enough to be drove crazy in my own house.' "'Day's nothing for you to go crazy about,' she says. "'If Bess and Mr. Bishop wants to tie up, "'leave them alone and forget about them. "'I'd like nothing better,' I says. "'But you know they'll give us no chance to forget about them. "'Why not?' she asked me. "'Because they'd starve to death without us,' I says. "'Starve to death?' she says. "'On ten thousand a year?' "'Now here,' I says, "'who told you he got that trifle?' He did, says the wife. And how do you know he wasn't overestimating? I asked her. You mean, how do I know he wasn't lying? She says. Yes, says I. Because he's a gentleman, she says. And he told you that, too, I asked. No, I could tell that by looking at him. All right, clairvoyant. I says, and maybe you can tell by looking at me how much money he borrowed off in me and never gave back. When? How much? She says. One at a time, says I. The amount of the cash transaction was a twenty-dollar gold certificate, and the time he shook me down was the evening he took us to hear Ida and was supposed to be paying for it. I can't believe it, says the missus. All right, I says. When he brings Bessie home from the ball game tomorrow, I'll put it to him right in front of you. No, you mustn't do that, she says. I won't have him insulted. You would have him insulted if I knew how to go about it, I says. You stayed over at Tim's too long, says the wife. Yes, says I, and I made arrangements to stay over there every time Bishop comes here. Suit yourself, she says, and pretended like she was asleep. Well, the next morning I got to thinking over what I'd said, and wondering if I'd went too strong, but I couldn't see where. This bird was a dude that had got acquainted with Bessie on the train when she was on her way here to visit us last winter. He'd infested the house all the while she was with us. He'd give us that ten-thousand-dollar yarn, and told us he made it by writing moving picture plays. But we never seen none of em advertised, and never run into anybody that ever heard of him. The missus had picked him out for Bess the minute she seen him. Bessie herself had fell for him strong. To keep em both from dropping cyanide in my gruel, I'd took him along with us to see the love of three kings, besides buying his groceries and provisions for pretty near a week, and standing for the upkeep on the Davenport where him and Bess held hands. Finally, after he'd went six days without submitting even circumstantial evidence that he'd ever had a dime, I bullied him into saying he'd give us a party. Then there'd been an argument over where he'd take us. He suggested a vaudeville show, but I jumped on that with both feet. Bessie held out for a play, but I told her there wasn't none that I'd leave a young unmarried sister-in-law of mine go to. Oh, Bess had said, they must be some that's perfectly genteel. Yes, I told her, there is some, but they're not worth seeing. So they'd asked what was left, and I'd mentioned grand opera. They're worse than plays, the most of em, was the wife's cut in. But all the risky parts is sang in Latin and Greek, I'd said. Well, Bishop put up a great fight, but I wouldn't break ground, and finally he says he would take us to opera if he could get tickets. I'm downtown every day, I told him. I'll have them reserved for you. But no, he wouldn't see me put to all that trouble for the world. 
he'd do the buying himself. So Ida was what he took us to on a Sunday night, when the seats was cut to half price. And when I and him went out between acts to try the limes, he catched me with my guard down and frisked the twenty. Now Bess had tipped off the wife that her and Bishop was practically engaged, but the night after Ida was the last night of her visit, and Bishop hadn't never come round. So Bessie cried all night and tried to get him by phone before she left next day, but neither of them two acts done her any good. It looked like he was all through. On the way to the train, Bess and the missus had ruined three or four handkerchiefs and called the bird every low-down flirt they could think of. I didn't say a word, nor did I perfume my linen with brine. Here, though, was Bess back in town, and old man Short making up to her again, and they'd been correspondent. The second time was liable to take, unless outside brains came to the rescue. If I thought for a minute that they'd leave us out of it and go away somewhere by themselves and live, the north side or one of the suburbs, or Wabash, I wouldn't have cared how many times they married each other. But I had him spotted for a loafer that couldn't earn a living, and I knowed what the marital nuptials between Bess and he meant. It meant that I and the missus would have all the pleasures of conducting a family hotel without the pain of making out receipts. Now, I always wanted a boy and a girl but I wanted them to be kind of youngish when I got them. I never craved adding a married couple to my family, not even if they was crazy about rummy and paid all their bills. And when it come to Bishop and Bess, well, they was just as welcome to my home as Villa and the Little Villains. It wasn't just Bishop with his quaint habit of never having car fare. Bess in her way was just as much of a liability. You couldn't look at her without a slight relapse. She had two complexions, a.m. and p.m. The p.m. wasn't so bad, but she could have put the other in her vanity box for a mirror. Her nose curved a little away from the batsman and wasn't no wider than a julienne potato, and yet it had to draw in to get between her eyes. Her teeth was real pretty, and she always kept her lips ajar, but the baseball reporters named Maddie's favorite delivery after her chin and from there down the curves was taboo. Where she made a hit with Bishop was laughing at everything he pulled. That is, he thought she was laughing. The fact was that she was snatching the chance to show more of them teeth. There was no use showing them to me, so I didn't get laughs from her on my stuff, only when he or some other stranger was round. And if my stuff wasn't funnier than Bishop's, I'll lay down my life for Austria. As a general rule, I don't think a man is justified at interfering with other people's hymeneal intentions, but it's different when the said intentions is going to make your own home a hell. It was up to me to institute proceedings that would check the flight of these two cooing doves before their wings took them to Crown Point in a yellow fliver. And I seen my duty all the more clear when the pair came home from the ball game the day after Bessie's arrival and not only told me that the White Sox got another trimming, but laughed when they said it. Well, Bishop, I says when we sat down to supper, how many six-reelers are you turning out a day? About one every two weeks is the limit, says Bishop. I'll bet it is, I says, and who are you working for now? The Western Film Corporation, he says, but I'm going to quit them the first of the month. What for? I asked him. Better offer from the criterion, he says. 
Better than ten thousand a year, says I. Sure, he says. Twenty dollars better, I says. He blushed, and the wife sunk my shin with a patent leather torpedo. Then Bishop says, The raise I'm getting would make twenty dollars look sick. If you'd give it to me, I says, I'd try and nurse it back to health. After supper, the missus called me out in the kitchen to bawl me out. It's rough stuff to embarrass a guest, she says. He's always embarrassed, says I. But you admit now, don't you, that I was telling the truth about him touching me? Yes, she says. Well, says I, if he's so soiled with money, why don't he pay a little puny debt? He's probably forgot it, says she. Did he look like he'd forgot it? I asked her, and she had no comeback. But when my missus can overlook a guy stinging me for legal tender, it means he's in pretty strong with her. And I couldn't count on no help from her, even if Bishop was a murderer, so long as Bess wanted him. The next morning, just to amuse myself, I called up the Criterion people and asked them if they was going to hire a scenario writer named Elmer Bishop. Never heard of him was what they told me. So I called up the Western. Elmer Bishop, they says. He ain't no scenario writer. He's what we call an extra. He plays small parts sometimes. And what pay do them extras drag down, I asked. Five dollars a day, but nothing when they don't work, was the thrilling response. My first idea was to slip this dope to the wife and Bess both. But what'd be the use? They wouldn't believe it, even if they called up and found out for themselves. And if they did believe it, Bessie'd say a man's pay didn't make no difference where true love was concerned, and the missus would take her part, and they'd cry a little, and wind up by sending for Bishop and a minister to make sure of the ceremony coming off before Bishop lost his five-dollar job and croaked himself. Then I thought of forbidding him the hospitality of my abode. But that'd be just as useless. They'd meet somewheres else and if I threatened to lock Bess out, the wife would come back with a counter-proposition to not give me no more stewed beets or banana souffles. Besides that, strong-arm methods don't never kill sweet love, but act just the opposite and make the infected parties more set on getting each other. This here case was something delicate, and if a man didn't handle it exactly right, you wouldn't never get over being sorry. So instead of me quarreling with the wife and Bess, and raising a fuss at Bishop spending eight evenings a week with us, I kept my clam closed and tried to be pleasant, even when I'd win a hand of rummy and see this guy carelessly lose a few of his remaining face cards under the table. We had an awful spell of heat in July, and it was no fun playing cards and going to picture shows or nothing. Saturday afternoons and Sundays I and the missus would go over to the lake and splash. Bess only went with us a couple of times, but that was because she couldn't get Bishop to come along. He'd always say he was busy, or had a cold, and was afraid of making it worse. So far as I was concerned, I managed to enjoy my bath just as much with them two staying away. The sight of Bessie in a bathing suit crabbed the exhilarating effects of the swim. When she stood up in the water, the minnows must have thought two people was still fishing. It was one night at supper, after Bessie'd been with us about a month, when the idea came to me. Bishop was there, and I'd been looking at he and Bess, and wondering what they'd seen in each other. The missus asked him if they was going out some place. No, says Bessie, it's too hot, and they ain't no place to go. There's lots of places to go, says the wife. For one thing, 
They're having grand opera out to Ravinia Park. I wouldn't give a nickel to see a grand opera, says Bess, unless it was Ida that Elmer took us to last winter. So they went on talking about something else. I don't know what, because the minute she mentioned Ida, I was all set. I guess maybe I better tell you a little about this here opera, so you'll see how it helped me out. A fellow named Gust Verity wrote it, and the scenes is laid along the Illinois Central round Memphis and Cairo. Ida's a big wench with a pretty voice, and she's the hired girl in the mayor's family. The mayor's daughter gets stuck on a fat little tenor that you can't pronounce, and that should have had a lawnmower ran over his chin. The tenor likes the colored girl better than the mayor's daughter, and the mayor's daughter tries every way she can think of to bust it up and grab off the tenor for herself but nothing doing. Finally, the mayor has the tenor pinched for keeping open after one o'clock, and the law is pretty strict. So instead of just fining him, they lock him up in a safety deposit vault. Well, the wench is down in the vault, too, dusting off the papers and cleaning the silver, and they don't know she's there. So the two of them's locked up together and can't get out. And when they can't get away and haven't got nobody else to look at or talk to, they get so's they hate each other and finally they can't stand it no longer, and they both die. There's pretty music in it, but if old Gus had seen the men that was going to be in the show, he'd have laid the scenes in Beardstown instead of Memphis. Well, do you get the idea? If the mayor's daughter had been smart, instead of trying to keep the tenor and Ida from being with each other, she'd have locked them up together a long while ago, and first thing you know they'd have been sick of one another, and just before they died, she could have let them out and had the tenor for herself without no argument. And the same thing would work with Bishop and Bess. In all the time of their mutual courtship, they hadn't been together for more than five or six hours at a time, and never where one of them couldn't make a quick duck when they got tired. Make them stick around with each other for a day or for two days without no chance to separate, and it was a cinch that the alarm clock would break in on love's young dream. But for some reason or other, I didn't have no safety deposit vault, and there wasn't no room in the flat they couldn't get out of by jumping from the window. How was I going to work it? I thought and thought, and figured and figured, and it wasn't until after I went to bed that the solution came. A boat trip to St. Joe. I and the missus and the two lovebirds, and I'd see to it that the chaperones kept their distance and let nature take its course. We'd go over some Saturday afternoon and come back the next night. That would give them eight or nine hours Saturday and from twelve to sixteen hours Sunday to get really acquainted with each other. And if they were still on speaking terms at the end of that time, I'd pass up the case as incurable. You see, I had it doped that Bishop was afraid of water, or else he wouldn't have turned down all our swimming parties. I wouldn't leave him a chance to duck out of this because I wouldn't tell nobody where we was going. It'd be a surprise trip and there was a good chance that they'd both be sick if it was the least bit rough, and that'd help a lot. I thought of Milwaukee first, but I picked St. Joe because it's dry. A man might stand for Bess a whole day and more if he was a little blear-eyed from Milwaukee's favorite food. The trip would cost me some money, but it was an investment with a good chance of big returns. I'd have been willing to take him to Palm Beach for a month if that had been the only way to save my home. When Bishop blew in the next evening, I pulled it on him. Bishop, I says, a man that does as much brain work as you ought to get more recreation. I guess I do work too hard, he says modestly. 
"'I should think,' I says, "'that you'd give yourself Saturday afternoons and Sundays off.' "'I do, in summer,' he says. "'That's good,' I says. "'I was thinking about giving a little party this coming weekend, "'and of course I wanted you to be in on it.' "'The two girls got all excited. "'Party?' says the missus. "'What kind of a party?' "'Well,' I says, "'I was thinking about taking you and Bishop and Bess out of town for a little trip.' "'Where to?' asked the wife. "'That's a secret,' I says. "'You won't know where we're going till we start. "'All I'll tell you is that we'll be gone from Saturday afternoon till Monday morning.' "'Oh, how grand,' says Bessie. "'And think how romantic it'll be, not knowing where we're headed.' "'I don't know if I can get away or not,' says Bishop.' I pay all expenses, says I. Oh, Elma, you've just got to go, says Bess. The trip's off if you don't, I says. If you don't say yes, I'll never speak to you again, says Bessie. For a minute I hoped he wouldn't say yes, but he did. Then I told him that the start would be from our house at a quarter to one Saturday and to pack up their sporty clothes. The rest of the evening was spent in them trying to guess where we was going. It got them nothing, because I wouldn't say aye, yes, or no to none of their guesses. When I and the missus was alone, she says, Well, what's the idea? No idea at all, I says, except that our honeymoon trip to Palm Beach was a fliver, and I feel as if I ought to make up to you for it. And besides that, Bessie's our guest, and I ought to do something nice for she and her friend. I'd think you must have been drinking if I didn't know better, she says. You never do give me credit for nothing, says I. To tell the truth, I'm kind of ashamed of myself for the way I've been acting toward Bishop and Bess. But I'm willing to make amends before it's too late. If Bishop's going to be one of the family, I and him ought to be good friends. That's the way I like to hear you talk, says the wife. But remember, I says, this trip ain't only for their benefit, but for iron, too. And from the minute we start till we get home, us two'll pile around together just like we was alone. We don't want them buttin' in on us, and we don't want to be buttin' in on them. That suits me fine, says she, and now maybe you'll tell me where we're going. You promise not to tell, I asked her. Sure, she says. Well, I says, that's one promise you'll keep. And I buried my good ear in the feathers. At twenty minutes to two Saturday afternoon, I landed my entire party at the dock, foot of Wabash Avenue. Goody, says Bess, we're going across the lake. If the boat stays up. I don't know if I ought to go or not, says Bishop. I'd ought to be where I can keep in touch with the Criterion people. They got a wireless aboard, I says. Yes, says Bishop, but they wouldn't know where to reach me. You got time to phone them before we sail, says I. No, he hasn't, says Bessie. He ain't going to take no chance of missing this boat. He can send him a wireless after we start. So that settled Bishop, and he had to walk up the gangplank with the rest of us. He looked just as pleased as if they'd lost his laundry. I checked the baggage and sent the three of them up on deck, saying I'd join him later. Then I asked the boy where the bar was. Right in there, he says, pointing. But you can't get nothing till we're three miles out. So I went back to the gangplank and started off the boat. A man about four years old with an adding machine in his hand stopped me. "'Are you going to make the trip?' he asked me. "'What do you think I'm on here for, to borrow a match?' says I. "'Well,' he says, "'you can't get off.' 
You're cross, I says. I bet your milk don't agree with you. I started past him again, but he got in front of me. You can get off, of course, he says, but you can't get back on. That's the rules. What sense is they in that? I asked him. If I let people off and on again, my account would get mixed up, he says. Who are you? says I. I'm the government checker, he says. Chess, says I, and you count all the people that gets on? That's me, he says. How many is on now? I asked him. Eight hundred odd, he says. I asked you for the number, not the description. I says, how many's the limit? Thirteen hundred, he says. And would the boat sink if there was more than that, says I? I don't know if it would or wouldn't, he says, but that's all the law allows. For a minute I felt like offering him a lump sum to let seven or eight hundred more on the boat and be sure that she went down. Meanwhile, I'd be over getting a drink. But then I happened to think that the missus would be among those lost. And though a man might do a whole lot better the second time, the chances are that he'd do a whole lot worse. So I passed up the idea and stayed aboard, praying for the time when we'd be three miles out on Lake Michigan. It was the shortest three miles you ever seen. We hadn't got out past the municipal pier when I see a steady influx going past the engine room and into the great beyond. I followed him and got what I was after. Then I went up on deck looking for my guests. I found him standing in front of one of the lifeboats. Why don't you get comfortable, I says to Bishop. Why don't you get chairs and enjoy the breeze? That's what I've been telling him, says the missus, but Mr. Bishop acts like he was married to this spot. I'm only thinking of your wife and Bessie, says Bishop. If anything happened, I'd want him to be near a lifeboat. Nothing's going to happen, I says. They ain't been a wreck on this lake for over a month, and this here boat, the city of Benton Harbor, ain't never sank in her life. No, says Bishop, and the Shakora in Eastland never sank until they sunk. The boats that sinks, I says, is the boats that's overloaded. I was talking to the government checker player downstairs, and he tells me that you put 1,300 on this boat and she's perfectly safe, and there's only 800 aboard now. Then why do they have the lifeboats? asked Bishop. So you can go back if you get tired of the trip, I says. I ought to be back now, says Bishop, where the firm can reach me. We ain't more than two miles out, I says. If your firm's any good, they'll drag the bottom further out than this. Besides, I says, if trouble comes, the lifeboats would handle us. Yes, says Bishop, but it's women and children first. Sure, says I, that's the proper order for drowning. The world couldn't struggle along without us $10,000 scenario riders. They couldn't be no trouble on such a lovely day as this, says Bess. That's where you make a big mistake, I says. That shows you don't know nothing about the history of Lake Michigan. What do you mean? asked Bishop. All the wrecks that's took place on this lake, I says, has happened in calm weather like today. It's just three years ago this July, I says, when the city of Ypsilanti left Grand Haven with about as many passengers as we got today. The lake was just like a billiard table and no thought of danger. Well, it seems like there's a submerged water oak about three miles from shore that you're supposed to steer round it. But this pilot hadn't never made the trip before, and besides that he'd been drinking pretty heavy. So what does he do but run plump into the tree, and the boat turned to turtle, and all the passengers was lost except a tailor named Swanson. But that was just an unreliable officer, says Bessie. He must have been crazy. Crazy, says I. They wouldn't nobody work on these boats unless they was crazy. It's bound to get em. I hope we got a reliable pilot today, says Bishop. 
He's only just a kid, I says, and I noticed him staggering when he came aboard. But anyway, you couldn't ask for a better bottom than they is right along in here. Nice, clean sand, and hardly any weeds. What time do we get to St. Joe? asked Bishop. About seven, if we don't run into a squall, I says. Then I and the wife left him and went around to another part of the deck and ran into squalls of all nationalities. Their mothers had made a big mistake in bringing them, because you could tell from their faces and hands that they didn't have no use for water. They just all look alike, says the missus. I don't see how the different mothers can tell which is their baby. It's fifty-fifty, I says. The babies don't look no more alike than the mothers. The mothers is all named Jenny, and all perfect cubes and fond of apples, and ought to go to a dentist. Besides, I says, suppose they did get mixed up and swap kids. None of the parties concerned would have reasons to gloat, and the babies certainly couldn't look no more miserable under different auspices than they do now. We walked all around the deck, threading our way among the banana peelings, and looking our shipmates over. Pick out somebody you think you'd like to meet, I told the wife, and I'll see if I can arrange it. Thanks, she says, but I'll try and not get lonesome with my husband and my sister and my sister's beau along. It's nice for you to say it, says I, but you want to remember that we're leaving Bess and Bishop to themselves, and that leaves you and I to ourselves, and they ain't no two people in the world that can spend two days alone together without getting bored stiff. Besides, you don't want to never overlook a chance to meet high-class people. When I get desperately anxious to meet high-class people, she says, I'll be sure and pick out the Saturday afternoon boat from Chicago to St. Joe. You can't judge people by their looks, says I. You haven't heard them talk. No, and couldn't understand them if I did, she says. I'll bet some of them's just as bright as we are, I says. I'm not looking for bright companionship, she says. I want a change. That's just like I told you, says I. You're bound to get tired of one person, no matter how much they sparkle, if you live with them long enough. We left the deck and went downstairs. There was two or three people peering in the engine room, and the missus made me stop there a minute. What for? I asked her. I want to see how it works, she says. Well, says I, when we would started on again, I can drop my insurance now. Why, says the missus. I don't never need to worry about you starving, I says. With the knowledge you just picked up there, I bet you could easily land a job as engineer on one of these boats. I'd do about as good as you would at it, she says. Sure, I says, because I didn't study it. What makes the boat run? I asked her. Why, the wheel, she says. And who runs the wheel? I asked her. The pilot, says she. And what does the engineer do? I says. Why, I suppose he keeps the fire burning, she says. But in weather like this, what do they want of a fire? Oh, I suppose it gets colder out in the middle of the lake, she says. No, says I, but on Saturdays they got to keep a fire going to heat the baby's bottles. We went in the room next to the bar. A boy sat at the piano playing Sweet Cider Time in Moonshine Valley and some Hawaiian native melodies composed by a Hungarian waiter that was too proud to fight. Three or four couple was dancing, but none of them was wry-necked enough to get the proper pose. The girls looked pretty good and was probably members of the 400 employed at the fair. The boys would have been handsomer if the laundry hadn't failed to bring back their other shirt in time. A big guy in a uniform came by and went into the next room. "'Is that the captain?' asked the wife. "'No,' says I. "'That's the steward.' "'And what does he do?' she asked me. 
He hangs around the bar, I says, and looks after the stews. Have they really got a bar? she says. I'll find out for sure if you'll wait here a minute, says I, and led her to a chair where she could watch him wrestle. In the other room I stood next to a Greek that charged ten cents on Sundays and holidays. He was all lit up like the municipal pier. Enjoying the trip? I asked him. Too rough, too rough, he says, only I don't do the dialect very good. I bet you never got that shine at your own stand, says I. Too hot to work, says he. I don't have to work. I got them on. Yes, I says, and the bun. A little way off from us was four other political enemies of O. Frank Hanley, telling my Greek friend in tonsorial tones that if he didn't like his Uncle Sammy, he knew what he could do. Don't you like your Uncle Sammy? I asked him. I don't have to work, he says. I got them on. Then why don't you take them boys' advice, I says, and go back to your home over the sea? Too rough, too rough, he says. And in the twenty minutes I stood there with him, finding out whether they really was a bar, he didn't say nothing except he had them on, and he didn't have to work, and something was too rough. I and the missus went back up on deck. I steered for the end of the boat that was farthest from where we'd left Bess and Bishop, but they'd begun to get restless, and we ran into them taking a walk. "'Where are you been?' asked Bessie. "'Down watching them dance,' says the missus. "'Is there a place to dance aboard?' asked Bishop. But I didn't want them to dance, because that'd be an excuse not to say nothing to each other for a while, so I says, "'There's a place all right, but five or six couples already on the floor, and when you get more gnat trotting around at once, it's liable to rock the boat and be disastrous.' I took the wife's arm and started to move on. "'Where are you going?' says Bishop. "'Just for a stroll around the decks,' says I. "'We'll go along,' he says. I seen the treatment was beginning to work. "'Nothing doing,' I says. "'This is one of our semi-annual honeymoons, and we can't use no outside help.' A few minutes before we hit St. Joe we seen him again, setting down below, afraid to dance, and entirely out of conversation. They was having just as good a time as Jenny's babies. We're pretty near in, I says, and twas one of the smoothest crossings I ever made. They couldn't nobody get sick in weather like this, says Bess. No, I says, but you take a smooth Saturday afternoon, and it generally always means a rough Sunday night. Ain't they no railroad between here and Shy? asked Bishop. Not direct, I says. You have to go to Lansing and then cut across to Fort Wayne. If you make good connections, you can do it in a day and two nights. But most of the way's through the copper ranges, and the trains keeps getting later and later, and when they try to make up time, they generally always slip off in the track and spill their contents. If it looks like a storm tomorrow night, says Bess, we might wait over and go home Monday. That idea scared Bishop more than the thought of a wreck. Oh, no, he says, I got to be back on the job Monday morning. If it's as rough as I think it's going to be, says I, you won't feel like ripping off no scenarios Monday. We landed and walked up the highest hill in Michigan to the hotel. I noted that Miss Bessie carried her own suitcase. Well, says I, I suppose you two kids would rather eat your supper by yourself, and I and the missus would sit at another table. No, no, says Bess, it'll be pleasanter to all eat together. So for about half an hour we had them with us, and they'd have stuck the rest of the evening if I'd gave them a chance. What about a little game of cards, says Bishop, when we was through eating? 
It's mighty nice of you to suggest it, I says. But I know you're only doing it for my sake and the wife's. We'll find some way to amuse ourselves, and you and Bess can take a stroll down on the beach. The wind made me sleepy, says Bishop. I believe I'll go up to my room and turn in. The rooms is not ready, I says. The clerk will let us know as soon as we can have them. But he didn't take my word, and when he talked to the clerk himself and found out that he could have his room right away, there wasn't no arguing with him. Off he went to bed at 8 p.m., leaving the missus and I to entertain the Belle of Wabash. Sunday morning I added to my investment by hiring a fliver to take us out to the Edgewater Club. Now, I says, we'll rent some bathing suits and cool off. I don't dast go in, says Bishop. I'll take more cold. I'll watch the rest of you. Well, I didn't care whether he went in or not, the water being too shallow along there to drown him, but I did want him to watch the rest of us, one in particular. The suit they gave her was an Annette. I wouldn't make no attempt to describe what she looked like in it, unless it would be a capital Y that had got turned upside down. She didn't have no displacement, and she could have stayed in it all day without the lake ever finding out she was there. But I cut the film short so I could get him back to the hotel and leave the pair together. You're going to have all the rest of the day to yourself, I told him. We won't eat dinner with you. I and the missus will just disappear and meet you here in the hotel at seven o'clock tonight. Where are you going? asked Bishop. Never you mind, I says. Maybe we'd like to go along with you, he says. Yes, you would, says I. Remember, boy, I was in love once myself, and I know I didn't want no third parties hanging around. But what can we do all day in this burg, he says. "'There's plenty to do,' I says. "'You can go over there and sit on them benches "'and watch the inner urbans come in from South Bend and Niles, "'or you can hire a boat and go out for a sail, "'or you can fish for tarpons, "'or you can take a trolley over to Benton Harbor, "'or you can sit on the beach and spoon. "'Nobody minds here. "'Only be sure you don't sit in somebody's lunch basket, "'because they say a garlic stain's almost impossible to get out. "'And there's another thing you might do,' I says. "'This town's one of these here Gretna Greens.' You can get a marriage license and any delicatessen, and the streetcar conductors is authorized to perform the ceremony. They didn't blush when I pulled that. They turned pale, both of them, and I seen that I was going to win, sure. Come on, I says to the missus, we must be on our way. We left them before they could stop us and walked across the street and along through the park. Where are we headed? asked the wife. I don't know, I says, but I don't want to spoil their good time. I don't believe they're having a good time, she says. How could they help it, says I, when two true lovers is left alone together, what more could they ask for? There's something wrong with them, says the missus. They act like they was mad at each other, and Bess told me when we was out to the Edgewater Club that she wished we was home. That's a fine way for her to talk, I says, when I'm trying to show her a good time. "'And I overheard Elmer,' says the missus, "'asking one of the bellboys where he could get something to drink. "'And the bellboy asked him what kind of drink, "'and he says, "'Whiskey or poison, it don't make no difference. "'If I was sure he'd take the poison, "'I'd try to get it for him,' I says. "'On the grass and the benches in the park "'we seen some of the gang that had come over on the boat with us. "'They looked like they'd laid there all night, "'and the kids was crying louder than ever.' Besides them, we seen dozens of young couples that was still on speaking terms because they'd only been together for an hour or two. The girls was wearing nice clean white dresses and white shoes and was all prettied up. They seemed to be having the time of their life. 
and by four o'clock in the afternoon their fingers would be stuck together with Cracker Jack and their dresses decorated with chocolate syrup and their escorts talking to him like a section boss to a gang of hunkies. We wandered around till dinner time and then dropped into a little restaurant where they give you a whole meal for 35 cents and make a profit of 35 cents. When we'd staggered out under the weight of this repast, a streetcar was standing there that said it would take us to the house of David. Come on, I says, and led the missus aboard. Where to? she asked me. I don't know, I says, but it sounds like a roadhouse. It was even better than that. You couldn't get nothing to drink, but there was plenty to see and hear. Band concerts, male and female, moving pictures, a zoo, a bowling alley, and more funny-looking people than I ever seen in an amusement park before. It ain't a regular amusement park, but fifty-fifty between that and a kind of religious sex that calls itself the Holy Roller Skaters or something. All the men that was old enough to keep a beard had one, and for a minute I thought we'd bumped into the summer home of the people that took part in Ida. There wouldn't nobody have ever mistook the women for Folly's Chorus Girls. They looked like they was having a prize contest to see which could dress the homeliest, and if I'd been one of the judges I'd have split the first prize as many ways as there was women. I'm going to talk to some of these people, I told the wife. What for? she says. Well, for one thing, I says, I've been talking to one person so long I'm tired of it, and for another thing I want to find out what the idea of the whole concern is. So we walked up to one of the most flourishing beards, and I braced him. Who owns this joint? I says. All who have the faith, he says. What do they charge a man to join? I asked him. Many's called and few chosen, he says. How long have you been here? I asked him. Prove all things and hold fast to what's good, he says. Why don't you get some of our books and study them? He led us over to where they had the books, and I looked at some of them. One was the flying roll, and another was the living roll of life, and another was the rolling ball of fire. If you had some books about coffee, you could make a breakfast on them, I says. Well, we stuck around there till pretty near six o'clock, and talked to a lot of different ones, and asked them all kinds of questions. And they answered them all with verses from Scripture that had nothing to do with what we'd asked. We got a lot of information. We don't know no more about them now than before we come. We know their politics, I says. How? she asked me. From the looks of them, I says, they're unanimous for Hughes. We found Bess all alone, sitting in the lobby of the hotel. Where's your honey man? I asked her. She turned up her nose. Don't call him my honey man or anything else, she says. Why, what's the matter? asked the missus. Nothing at all's the matter, she says. Maybe just a lover's quarrel, says I. No, and no lover's quarrel, neither, says Bess. They couldn't be no lover's quarrel, cause there ain't no lovers. You had me fooled then, I says. I'd have swore that you and Bishop was just like that. You made a big mistake, says Bessie. I never cared nothing for him, and he never cared nothing for me, because he's incapable of caring for anything, only himself. Why, Bess says the missus. You told me just yesterday morning that you was practically engaged. I don't care what I told you, she says, but I'm telling you something now. I don't never want to hear of him or see him again, and you'll do me a favor if you'll drop the subject. But where is he? I asked her. I don't know, and I don't care, she says. But I got to find him, I says. He's my guest. 
You can have him, she says. I found him up in his room. The bellboy had got him something, and it wasn't poison, neither. At least I haven't never died of it. Well, Bishop, I says, finish it up and come downstairs. Bess and the wife will want some supper. You'll have to excuse me, he says. I don't feel like eating a thing. But you can come down and set with us, I says. Bess will be sore if you don't. Listen here, he says. You've took too much for granted. There's nothing between your sister-in-law and I. If you've set your heart on us being something more than friends, I'm sorry. But there's not a chance. Bishop, I says, this is a blow to me. It comes like a shock. And to keep myself from fainting, I took the bottle from his dresser and completed its ruin. You won't even come down and set with us, I says. No, says Bishop, and if you don't mind, you can give me my ticket back home, and I'll stroll down to the dock and meet you on the boat. Here's your ticket, says I. And where am I going to sleep, he says. Well, I says, I'll get you a stateroom if you really want it, but it's going to be a bad night, and if you was in one of them berths and something happened, you wouldn't have a chance in the world. You ain't going to have no berth yourself, he asked me. I should say not, I says. I'm going to get me a chair and sleep in the watertight compartments. Boys, my prophecy come true. There was more roll on old Lake Michigan that night than in all them books up to the Holy Rollers Skaters Park. And if the boat was filled to capacity, just thirteen hundred of us was fatally ill. I don't think it was the rolling that got me. It was one glimpse of all the Jennies and all their offsprings, and the wealthy Greek shoeshiners, and the millionaire truck drivers, and the heiress from the lace department, laying hither and thither in the cabins and on the decks, breathing their last, and how they must have felt to think that all their outlay for crackerjack and apples was a total loss. But Bishop wasn't sick. I searched the boat from the back to the stern, and he wasn't aboard. I guess probably he found out some way that there was such an institution as the Père Marquette, which gets into Chicago without touching them perilous copper ranges. But whether he arrived safe or not, I don't know, because I've never saw him again from that day to this, and I've lived happily ever afterward. And my investment, amounting all told to just about what he owes me, turned out even better than I hoped for. Best went back to Wabash that Monday afternoon. At supper Monday night, which was the first meal the missus could face, she says, I haven't got it figured out yet. Best swears they didn't have no quarrel, but I'll take an oath they was in love with each other. What could have happened? I know what happened, I says. They got acquainted. End of The Water Cure